Hi, do you want to come out and see the writers and creators and showrunners of your favorite shows that are not on TV, but are on alternative TV, like Netflix and Hulu? And do you also want to support 826LA? You can do that, both of those things, concurrently, on February 21st at a live writer's panel with Daredevil showrunners, our old pal, Doug Petrie, and his co-showrunner, Marco Ramirez, as well as Melissa Rosenberg, the creator and showrunner of Jessica Jones. She also wrote the Twilight movies, so we'll talk about those movies. Need more? Jason Kadams, creator of Parenthood and About a Boy and the showrunner of Friday Night Lights and the executive producer of the new Hulu series, The Path, which was created by Jessica Goldberg, who will also be there. This is a huge panel. I hope that all of you will come out and ask these guys questions and talk to them and watch me talk to them and watch them talk to each other. It'll be fun. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. I put the link up every day in every post. Writerspanel.tumblr.com. Or follow me on twitter.com, at Ben Blacker, and you will find the link for tickets. This is at the 826LA space in Echo Park, Los Angeles, California, America. And uh, seating is very limited. It's a small, cozy, intimate space. Synonyms. Who doesn't love them? Uh, so get your tickets soon. This is, once again, on February 21st, 5 to 7 p.m. Doesn't even ruin your day. In fact, it'll make your day. Hope to see you there. Writerspanel.tumblr.com Now entering Nerdist.com Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. All right, let's get into it. Okay, let's do it. I'm sitting with Kristen Newman. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm glad you finally have a minute to breathe. Uh, Kristen, too. until days ago, right, was running The Muppets. Two days ago. Good Lord. Are you <laughs> relaxed? Is this good? Like, I, I cannot imagine... And you took over about halfway through. Yes, I came in for the first day of production on episode 10, so it was really more like two-thirds oh, wow. of the way through. But episode 10 was our Christmas episode, um, which was our last episode before they took us off the air for two months mm -hmm. for this kind of retooling, is what yeah. the network called it. Um, so I came in and just shot that episode that had been written before mm -hmm. I got there, did some rewriting on that one. And um, and started breaking the back six that we had. That's unbelievable. I mean, it feels like just from a logistics perspective, like you are just trying to catch up coming in like that. That, that must have been insane. And we don't like, as I said before, we even started rolling. You know, we don't often get into sort of the the dirt of these things. But there's, I think, there are important lessons here, and that you were brought in to kind of write a ship uh, that many people were unhappy with behind the scenes. Um, that's an enormous thing to ask of someone. Like, how do you... Really what I'm asking to start is, how do you say yes to that? Well, I mean, the way you say yes to it is somebody says, do you want to run the Muppets? And every part of your childhood self says yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, because it's really such an incredible opportunity, and I couldn't believe... Uh, that they trusted me with it. It was such a it was such a big compliment and such a vote of confidence. And so I was excited for that career wise, and I was so excited to play with the Muppets from a 
childhood self-wise, I sort of felt like I couldn't lose in some ways unless I made terrible creative decisions. Like, I felt like if it did get better, then I was a hero, so it was safe in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was tremendous amount of work with so many opinions because every person who ever walked the face of the earth has their own version of the Muppets in their heart, and it's all different from... The, each other, the performers have different versions in their minds from each other even, from the network, from the studio, from all of the people watching at home, and so there's really no way to please everybody, and that was a really difficult thing for me because I, I want to please everybody inherently as a human being. <laughs> Need everybody to like me. Sure. Um, so that was very, very hard. Um, but what I talked about a lot is, is this Mike Nichols quote uh, where he says that often the difference between something working and not working is a quarter turn. Hmm. And the ship was already making that quarter turn before I came. The last couple of episodes before I came, they were starting to find tonally uh, the spot that I think that the show needed to be in. And um, and so it was really just continuing that turn for me. So um, what, what was that? What had you seen happening? In you the know, more positive. Yeah, catching? more positivity, more mm-hmm. joy. Um, you know, letting them up. It's being nicer to each other. Letting there be some more physicality. There was a big Gonzo getting shot out of a cannon episode. That was episode nine, and a drum off with Dave Grohl. And so focus on physicality and music. Um, and in the Christmas episode, big a big heart episode that let Piggy and Kermit connect again. And that was what I did the first day of work was work on those scenes in the Christmas episode so that we could really feel that even if they were broken up, that chemistry and that love was still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first episode back um, that I produced, I had them on stage together singing an old song. And I really wanted to lean into those tools that you're given when you inherit the Muppets, which is people feel good about the Muppets yeah. and being able to use I used, you know, they did an acapella version of the Muppet Show theme song in my first episode mm-hmm. because use that music use Rainbow Connection use <laughs> the way that they can fly through the air and be silly and physical in the way that humans can't. If you have puppets, why not do that? And mm-hmm. I got the really wonderful gift of getting to have other people try things Mm-hmm. And I got to learn from what they did, well, that, which that was, was yeah. you know things that things that worked and things that didn't, and and every t- every single show goes through that and comes upon things that don't work. I got to be the yeah. you know benefactor or the or the, or the receiver of, yeah. of all of that. You knowledge. often hear about like a show finding itself in yeah. the first season, and that's that's a great way to think of it. Is you got to pick out the things that did work. Yeah. Um, but Mistakes that I would very yeah, well have made too, but I just got to kind of, you know, not have to make them because I got to come in partway through, which Absolutely. is, a, that was another reason I took the job is that I, I got to really start with a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and that, that other thing, the thing that you mentioned about people having different ideas of what this show was, who these characters are, um, I think we can talk about that on sort of a micro level because you also, I would imagine, inherited a writing staff. Yes. And most of those people stayed, right? Everyone stayed. Yeah. I didn't get rid of anybody. I brought on one new writer, Scott Wanger, who I'd worked with on Gallivant and the Neighbors, mm-hmm. and he talks like a Muppet. So it was a very, <laughs> it was a very easy hire. Um, but so yeah, I had to come in not knowing if the yeah. staff would be a match for me or not, and thank the Lord above they were. Yeah. And they could get me there. And it was a totally new process for them because the way that uh, Bill Prady and Bob Cushell run rooms is to group write everything. Mm -hmm. And I do it the traditional way of breaking a script in the room and then sending people off to write outlines and drafts Mm -hmm. um, and then have the writer follow the whole process through. So they go to the production meetings. They spend the whole week on set. They go to post-production. They really follow the whole process. You have a singular voice Mm -hmm. kind of making sure that all of the other elements of production and post-production know what we were thinking about in the room when we first conceived of things, which was, I think, really great for the actors to get to meet the writers for the first time, really. And, and, you know, I really, I love to send the writers down to set with a big set of alt jokes. Mm -hmm. Um, So all of a sudden the performers had, you know, alt jokes at their fingertips when things weren't working and somebody there right away who could do it because I was so slammed. I didn't get to spend all the time on set that I'd like to. So I would kind of just do mornings and nights down there and then be slammed in between. So that was a new process for all of the writers. And um, and I'd never gotten to see any drafts that anybody had written because nobody had written a draft before I came. Um, so it was all unknown for me, and it was only six episodes to make and make them very quickly. So it was very scary, and thank God the writing staff was amazing and oh, were fantastic. Great. That's really good to hear. Yeah. And it sounds like they 
they were behind any changes and they were behind, you know, any, anything that had to happen to make the show better and keep it going. Yeah, they were really um, supportive and excited. And, you know, I came into their room the first day and wrote the word joy on the wall. And that was what I really, really wanted to to make part of every mm-hmm. decision that we made. And it was an instinct that they had all been having for a long time, too. So they were really excited to get to, you know, bring in characters that had been forbidden before or um, or just have a level of silliness that hadn't been hmm. part of it tonally before because there was sort of an initial impulse to try to make the show very realistic, very dry, kind of a la The Office, right. um, which works in some ways and, and I think you know, didn't sit for people well in other ways because it's the Muppets and you kind of want to feel good. You kind of want (laughs) to see them not bitter and jaded and sad about making television. You want them to feel excited about all of that. There's also that feeling that things are always on the edge of chaos. Yeah. And I feel like people responded to in the most recent films. That's what we want to see from these characters. Yeah. I also brought in a human bad guy Mm -hmm. um, to kind of unite them all to fight against the human bad guy, which is another... Cheap tool, cheap trick, you know, but it's it's a Muppet tool. Why not use the Muppet tool, you know? And it got them all to be on the same side again and unite, and it gives you that feel-good friendship Mm -hmm. thing that you want amongst them. And Piggy got to be part of the team instead of the bad guy Mm -hmm. that they were fighting against, which was really important for me, too, kind of shifting Piggy um, into somebody who realized that she kind of lost herself in some ways and lost the love of her life over Mm -hmm. it. And so I really wanted to um, put her back on the side of the Muppets and not against them all the time. and so our bad guy helped with that too. This this idea of of joy in the show, joy as the feeling, the driving force of the show. Looking at the past bunch of things you've worked on, and silliness too. There's, I mean, Gallivant and Neighbors, like folks so does that stuff so well. Yeah. But even Chuck had this sort of fun about it. Yeah. Um, is this something that you you chase, or is this something that you find yourself? put into like where where does this come in it seems to have just kind of become my path right like I I, <laughs> I I wouldn't say that I chased it but I really have no tolerance for people taking themselves too seriously mm-hmm. um, and shows that take themselves too seriously I'm you know not a super genre girl because sometimes I want to roll my eyes a little bit and say really everybody we're, we're saying these lines with that much seriousness exactly. these lines about the <laughs> Mordor or whatever um, so I like getting to you know make fun of, of the tropes a little bit mm-hmm. um, and and play mm-hmm. what is left your own devices mm-hmm. what is the the kind of show that you would make you know it's funny I continue to like dream about writing like you know togetherness or mad men or some sort <laughs> of like cable-y uh, subtle you know non-big jokey silly more grounded TV show mm-hmm. and it just keeps not happening so I don't know maybe that's just what I like to watch I, I don't know if I'll ever write it yeah. I, I wrote this book that I um, mm-hmm. plan to adapt once my ABC deal you know releases me back to worlds like cable because it's R-rated and international and things like that that are not network friendly um, and I have a version of that in my head that is more that tone. But, hmm. yeah, I don't know. When I sit down to write it, will it all still come out? <laughs> Puns and pratfalls? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> my God. Is that is that the comedy? Was that your gateway comedy? Is that the stuff you were into as, a, you know, an easily influenced youth? Yeah. I mean, I, I was growing up on all of those just sitcoms, all of the happy days and and I love Lucy and Muppets and that was that was it and you know musicals loved a musical really? always grew up watching musicals when I was sick on the couch um, so what yeah, was I guess more not than musicals I don't hear uh, that very often Singing in the Rain is what my mother I would want my mom to go really? rent me when I was sick on the couch oh. that's the one <laughs> um, and I still can watch that and get a little teary Gone with the Wind I probably saw a hundred times growing up too okay. though you know just a lot of a lot of the old Broadway stuff mm-hmm. just made me very happy West Side Story okay. My mother-in-law was a big Broadway star. She was um, she was in the first London cast of West Side Story in 1960, oh, wow. and she was the first Nanette in No No Nanette, and the you know first Kim in Bye Bye Birdie. She was, so yeah, that was kind of one of the highlights of my life is getting to <laughs> tap dance with her up on the Amundsen stage when she was doing Follies at 75. Oh She's, it was an awesome mother-in-law to follow That's to amazing. for me. Yeah, it was oh, a perfect funny. sweet spot for me. Uh, were you always a writer? Yeah, yeah. Was when there I was in a high performance school, performance path that you thought about. Mm, I mean, I did that little kid theater sure. thing, but boy, was I a terrible actress. I liked <laughs> to dance and tap dance and do things like that in mm-hmm. musicals um, at summer camp, but I did not get the leading roles. Really, not good. Sure. 
Um, but I really, uh, I always liked writing. I, in high school, I did a lot of journalism, but I hated doing all of the research part of it where you actually got quotes and statistics. Uh-huh. So I would just make it up. Absolutely. And I felt I was maybe on my path to like Philip Glass, you know, if I didn't start writing fiction because I was not not being a responsible reporter. Oh so then I started God. writing fiction. Wait, did you get called out on these things? No, no, I got awards. Do? I got high school journalism awards. No, I was, it was really a lot of falsehoods. Did you just feel like a fraud? No, I felt great about it. I felt <laughs> like I totally pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. <laughs> nice. Clearly, it eventually ate at you. You know, it ate at me. I was. I think I was. I just feared prison. Maybe you know. Sure, which yeah. is what they do to high school. That's right. That's what they do. That's what they do. It could have happened, but eventually, in the New York Times, it doesn't turn out well. You do it for that. <laughs> what right. if I stayed on that path? That's true. Um, so, how did you? How did you find your way to television writing? Well, I took a writing class when I was a high school senior um, at UCLA Extension. Mm-hmm. That, did you grew up here. Yeah, in Long Beach. Okay. And there was a guy in the class who had written for Sesame Street when I was watching it. And he was the first one who talked to me about what a writer's room was like and that it was a big group of people like Dick Van Dyke show (laughs) and they yelled at each other all day. And I'm hyper social and hate being alone with a computer. So that seemed like a really fun way to write for me. Um, But I didn't think it was funny. So I thought maybe I would work on dramas or something. But when I first came out to L.A., I went to school in Chicago. I went to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And I came out here, and um, my first job happened to be as a post-PA on the first season of Everybody Loves Raymond. Mm-hmm. And that was where I looked around and saw the writing staff and thought, I'm like them. They're the people on this 300-person crew that are my type. Like, I get them. They're my type. They're my people. And then I worked. Uh, my next job was on La Femme Nikita, working as Joel Cernow's assistant before he did 24. And... They were not my people. Mm-hmm. It's like drama writers are different people. They are not as much fun. Especially a Cerno room. Well, sure. From what I hear. Sure. There's a bunch of male Republicans <laughs> sitting alone in their offices, not talking to each other. So that didn't seem as much fun. So then I thought, okay, it seems like comedy is the, is mm-hmm. the place. That's where I, 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 see, I see myself reflected. So, so I kind of followed the people. That's great. So were you, were you writing your own stuff at the time? Yeah, I took another UCLA extension writing class, a couple of them, which is, I always tell young writers, to do, especially if you have a lack of self-motivation the way that I sort of did, because, yeah, you know, you do it. And, um, and I wrote a couple of spec scripts that, um, when I was a writer's assistant on the second season of that 70s show, mm-hmm. uh, the writers read and liked and gave me an episode to write right. that year, um, because they were stockpiling for a possible strike. Sure. So we had 29 <laughs> episodes and the writers had no interest in writing 29 episodes of any TV show. And so they're like, who wants an episode? <laughs> and so that, luckily I got one and then it went well and they hired me on staff the next year and I was there for six years writing. Oh, so wow. it was an amazing, amazing run. And that was oh, season two or three, I think, of 70s show. We got picked up for four years. What? That used to happen. That used to be a thing. Um, oh God, so it was crazy. crazy. So all those hiatuses, I would get on a plane and go for you know two months somewhere because I knew I had a job to come back to. I didn't have to yeah. staff. And that turned into all the chapters of my book of you know travel adventures and That's awesome. you know it was this amazing thing. Um, let's let me step back just for a second. So, was it in these extension courses that you wrote the spec scripts? Mm-hmm. Um, were they done like a writer's room or did um, no? You did your of, own. Everybody did was their it own independent script. Study. Yeah, exactly. You kind of came in and you'd read each other's stuff and uh, and give feedback on each other's okay. stuff, as I recall. Um, but really, it was just, you know, having a teacher who knew what they were doing yeah. to give you notes. And what did you write? I wrote um, an Everybody Loves Raymond, mm-hmm. and I wrote a Dharma and Gre- No, I wrote a Third Rock from the Sun. That's what I did. It was a Third Rock from the Sun, which I had a very humiliating moment. What was it? I don't know, five years ago, maybe? I had been writing for a long time, and I had a meeting on Big Bang Theory um, with Chuck Lorre. I cannot think. Bill Prady might have been in that meeting. Um, but I can't really remember. Um, Steve Molaro was, mm-hmm. I think, who runs that. He, I think, he runs that room now. Um, but I met on it, and I found out partway through the meeting that the spec script they had read of mine, fifteen years into my career, was one of those spec scripts that I wrote as a twenty-three-year-old assistant in my UCLA extension writing oh class God. that UTA had in some file somewhere. And Chuck had wanted to see a spec multicam, and all I had was produced multicams and spec single cams. So UTA said, oh, oh here's God. a spec multicam. And they sent them the script that I'm 
positive must have been terrible <laughs> because I did not know what I was doing. And I was like humiliated. Got you the meeting. I mean, I guess it got me the meeting, but I didn't get the job. <laughs> it was a terrible script. No. <laughs> terrible. That should be out of circulation. Yeah, it should be gone. It, was, it needs so to be burned. I, I think I had them burn it out. Do you remember the plots of those specs? I'm always mm. curious about those. Um, and this is part of why I miss spec writing. Right? I think I, my third rock from the sun was um, Dick learned about social activism. Like, he, because he was a college professor and there was a sit in. Mm-hmm. So that was where he learned about, you know, okay. uh, learned about protest. Um, and then I cannot tell you what my Raymond was about. I couldn't tell you what a single episode of that 70s show that I wrote was about. I mean, really? I think there were 22 of them, 25 of them, something like that. But my very first one was about somebody having to babysit a baby. That's all I remember about it. <laughs> so you are like 23, 24, and mm-hmm. you get staffed on that 70s show. I was 26 when I finally okay. got the writing job. Um, who was running the show? And like that must have been, you had sort of seen rooms and been in rooms as the mm-hmm. assistant, but that's a whole different experience. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that writer's assistant yeah. job is such a grad school, you know, for mm-hmm. what to do and what not to do if you really listen and watch and see how people... Learn. I mean, again, I, I didn't think I knew how to write a joke. I didn't. Mm. I wasn't a comedy nerd growing up. I didn't do stand-up comedy like everybody else did. Yeah. I didn't know. I learned how to do it on the job. It's really a very learnable skill and how to how to shape a joke, what kinds of jokes there are, how to tell a joke at your own expense but after you pitch a joke that doesn't go well <laughs> so people laugh right. at you and still come away from the moment thinking that right. you're great. Um, like <laughs> all of those skills, how to say things like, this is the bad pitch, and then say the thing, mm-hmm. and it's not in your brain the bad pitch, but you lower expectations so people then like it. Mm-hmm. Um, like all those little tricks right. that you can learn by watching I had. So that was great. Um, you know, Mark Brazil was running the show and had created it and gave me my life and my career and my house. I mean, God <laughs> bless him. Um, so he was the one who, who gave me the shot. And, you know, there's, there's something very particular about uh, getting promoted from a room where you were an assistant. Mm-hmm. It took many years for them not to, you know, just harass me constantly as an assistant type, um, regardless of the fact that I wasn't an assistant anymore. Coming out of that room to a different room and coming in as a co-exec was a very different experience. I'm like, wow, nobody's mean to me here. Like, nobody's making me cry. This is amazing. I mean, and I loved the 70s show staff. We were family, and they are my closest friends. And Greg Mettler is one of the writers on The Muppets, and he was on 70s show with me for six years and and was my work husband there. So Mm -hmm. that was my... That was my, like, rock to hang on to when yeah. I came into them up at last minute. So, anyway, I love them all, but I was their little sister that they... Absolutely. Th- you know, that, that they they, they uh, harassed the whole time. So, um, it was definitely... It, it toughened me up. So, let, let's talk about room behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, we're often asked about the role of the writer's system. Mm-hmm. It's been a while, but... Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that you learned? Like, what, what to do and what not to do as the writer's assistant? Right. Um, well, you know, that you start with being fantastic at your job. Mm-hmm. That, you know, your agenda of showing that you're funny and that you're a good writer doesn't get to come into play for a really long time, and it should always be secondary. You know, that, like, you only are going to get people to think of you in that other way if they feel absolutely comfortable that you're doing your job first, you know, so being really good at that part of it, um, which doesn't always happen. A lot of time people are in there trying to pitch jokes and then they're not getting everything down that everybody else is saying around them. So that part's important. Um, and I've been able to read the people around you to know who's open to reading your stuff and helping you and who's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of had it be a rule that if somebody had never asked me if I wanted to be a writer and asked me what I was working on, then I didn't ask them to read my stuff. I just waited for the writers in the room who did yeah. broach that, and I kind of went to them about that and didn't push everybody. Um, you know, just learning how um, the kind of different roles in a room go and kind of seeing that as a staff writer, it's okay to hang back a little bit and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, just kind of add versus... Um, versus pitching against anything, mm-hmm. you know, instead of shooting something down, only adding jokes, only adding story beats, kind of waiting oh, until you've been there a while yeah. to be the one saying, I don't think this is working. Right. When you do say, I don't think this is working, always having an alternate pitch, never, ever shooting something down if you don't have a better hmm. version or an idea of how to fix it. 
Um, never pitching something more than once. <laughs> that's a big one. A you say one. it once, and if nobody says anything, that's their polite way of saying we don't like it. It, it does not mean they didn't hear you. Um, that's very difficult for me. I'm an only child, and I <laughs> talk a lot, so uh, I like to make sure everybody really heard what I was saying. Well, it seems like you were in a safe room Ish. Yeah, except that they would make me cry a lot too, you know. But but I stopped crying too. You do get better at you toughen not, up. You toughen up. You stop crying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those were some of the the biggest that's, ones. Yeah, that's great. And these are things we hear often. Mm-hmm. And I think they're all these are solid pieces of advice. Um, uh, how was that room run? Um, very well. We had first Mark Brazil for the first few years, and then I think season four or five, Jackie and Jeff Philgo took over, mm-hmm. who are a married couple and amazing writing team. Um, and they did that. They did it for a few years, and then the very last season, they had three of the kind of high level writers: Mark Brazil, or not sorry, Mark Hudis, Rob Desotel, and Dean Vitale all co-ran it that last mm-hmm. year. At that point, it was, you know, episode 200. It right. was such a finely <laughs> oiled machine that it just kind of uh, kept going. But it was a lot of, you know, it was a traditional multicam show. So it was a lot of downtime until run-through would happen. And then late nights after run-through would happen, rewriting it that night. Um, the thing I learned most from that show was not to panic about coming up with more episodes because, like, season six or so, or five of the eight seasons we were there, we started day one in June going, I don't have anything. Like, we've written already 100 or 150 episodes. And we also, on Seventy show, froze the teenagers in time. Like, because for some reason that I'll never understand, <laughs> Mark Brazil and the Turners had that Seventy show start in 1976. So, and you can't ever let it be 1980, right. that 70s show, so you have to, you, you only have four years, right? But you want it to go eight years, so, and you don't want the teenagers to graduate and leave the house because the show's all about them being stuck in the basement. So, like, they were sophomores for three years, and they were juniors for two years, and they would be kind of two or three Christmases 1977, you know? We did this funky thing um, with time, and so where other shows let people get older and move on to different phases of their lives and get married and have kids and get divorced and move. And so you get new stories that way. We kept them as teenagers in a basement for 220 episodes. Holy like, shit. I didn't they just sat that. there like that. I mean, we let them graduate maybe season seven right. or something. That's season seven. It was a long time. And somehow it still got made. And so it gave me this intense sense of confidence that mm. even when you feel 100% certain that you are out of story ideas, somebody will have something because we all keep living. And so somebody comes in going, okay, I had this really funny fight with my wife this morning. And then that gives you a story idea. Right. And, and it's my favorite part about being a sitcom writer. And this is also different than drama, I learned. Because um, I'm married to a drama writer and I spent some time with all the drama writers on Chuck. Is that you immediately on day one tell each other your most personal private stories because that's in comedy where you get story ideas we were not writing about spies and lawyers and and um doctors we're writing about marriages and friendships and um you know families and so you're talking about your own personal relationships right away so and i hate small talk and i love personal details so it's my favorite thing about about comedy writing, about a, about a sitcom room. Um, how, so how was that to transition to Chuck? I, mean, I know you probably did a few things in between. It was awesome. I um, did not know that Chuck was a half or was a one hour mm-hmm. when I asked to be submitted for the show. <laughs> Hadn't seen it before. Yep. Didn't know. I knew it was a comedy, so I thought that it was half hour long. So I didn't know I was transitioning. Um, but then it was an hour long, it turned out. And uh, and there were six acts. That seemed crazy. I was like, I don't have any idea how to break six acts. That's so much plot. The amount of plot you need is intense. Um, but Chuck was an amazing place because because it had all of these different elements to it. There were all of these different kinds of writers. So there was me and one other comedy guy, Craig DiGregorio, who came from Ali G and is now running Ash vs Evil Dead. And um, he, you know, he he was the other comedy guy. Then there were people who were from Law and Order, people from Ugly Betty, people from Veronica Mars, people from procedurals, people from soft dramas, comedy, all of it. And we all had such different skill sets, and everybody was also so kind and non-ego driven. 
that everybody really respected what everybody brought differently to the table. And so I, who had never heard the term MacGuffin before I worked there, um, was like, I don't know what's happening with the microfiche this week. I don't know. And I don't know that there's not even microfiche anymore. I don't even know that. And, you know, they would figure out the kind of the spy element. And then they would be like, okay, what are Chuck and Sarah talking about while they defuse the bomb? I'm like, well, they had a fight last night and here's what they fought about. And so I would kind of you know, add in the emotional parts and the comedy parts, mm-hmm. and then ultimately ended up really loving writing like the dirty, dirty hairy lines over guns, <laughs> and that kind of element of it turned out to be a surprise joy for me oh, that I didn't really know great. I was going to love. But I was always the one in the room going like, how do they get to Morocco and back that fast? And why does the bad guy give that long speech over his gun <laughs> instead of just shooting Chuck? Because now Chuck has all that time to learn about his diabolical plot and then kick the gun out of his hand. Why wouldn't he just shoot him? And Chris Fidak, who created the show, was like, Kristen, because that's how these shows happen. This is what happens in this kind of genre, Kristen. They just get to Morocco and back. It's fine. <laughs> you get mad at me. But, you know, we all brought these different things, and, so and it was great for that reason. That's really interesting. Um, was there... Were you, did you guys produce your episodes? Mm-hmm, we did. So that must have been an amazing learning experience, too. I mean, it's a yeah. whole different thing coming from multicams. Oh, yeah, and there's a really different role for the writer on set in a mm-hmm. um, one hour from a single, even a single camera, half hour. Yeah. Like, I was used to being the boss on set. Mm-hmm. You know, you come on set and you tell the director where to put the camera. And um, in one hour, they were, first of all, in shock, they'd never had writers on set before. I started season four and I was like, there's jokes in this. We should have writers on set in case the jokes aren't working. That's mm. something that should happen. And so I kind of started that on Chuck, having writers down there. So it was, first of all, new for the actors and, and directors to have any writer on set at all, let alone somebody standing <laughs> in the middle of rehearsal giving acting notes which I did right away because that's what I was used to doing right. and they didn't like all that much and I had to like adjust and realize that the culture is different on a one hour and the director is you know is much more mm-hmm. of a kind of role that the film director plays um, and you need to be a little bit more careful oh my God. so I had to learn that <laughs> yeah and yeah uh, how was it working with non-comedy actors I mean Zach, <laughs> Zach knows comedy but yeah like the rest of that cast yeah, it was good. It was good. I mean, yeah. and we also brought a lot of comedians onto Chuck. Mm-hmm. Chris Fedak really loved having comedians play dramatic roles. Mm-hmm. He always felt like they brought something kind of odd, odd to dramatic reading. Yeah. So we had a lot of like comedian bad guys, um, things like that, and and that was always fun. Um, but uh, what I'm what I'm really curious about is, does it change? And maybe this came before you were there, mm-hmm. but does it change the writing? You know, are there jokes you can and can't do? Are there even emotional scenes that you can and can't do? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a very particular skill to tell a joke. I Mm -hmm. feel like comedy people can go to drama usually much easier than drama can go to comedy, Mm -hmm. both in writing and acting. Um, But for me, too, it was also about understanding that what I would write as a first draft quip that on a comedy I would have to go back and rewrite 12 times before everybody else would rewrite that same joke 12 more times. Um, That first draft quip was on television, and they called it a joke. (laughs) They're like, that's a big blow, a big joke. I'm like, it is? I don't think it's a joke. I think we're using that term a little lightly, guys. But anything that I really thought was a joke was too jokey Mm -hmm. for that tone. So, you know, kind of learning that you have to sometimes pull back on the joke writing of it all. Mm-hmm. Like we had never done, um, Chuck had never done punch up passes on any of their scripts before sure. I started season four. Um, and Craig and I, as the comedy people both started season four. It was kind of a mostly new staff that mm-hmm. season because they picked it up so late that they lost most of their staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the drama writers were constantly amazed that when we would go through for a punch up pass, Craig and I would separately write jokes and we would both go, I have something top of page three. And he'd be like, yeah, me too. And I'd be like, I have something three quarters of the way down on page eight. And he would say, yeah, me too. And we would always have jokes in the same spots, which for us is very normal. This always happens when everybody's punching it up because comedy writers all see the holes for jokes in the same spot. But the drama writers had never done that before and thought it was amazing that we always honed in on the exact (laughs) same spots for pitches. That's funny. Yeah, so it was interesting to all see each other's kind of different ways. But they would also, a lot of times, cut our jokes and go, come on, you guys, this is a serious (laughs) moment. It has to be a scary bad guy. Like, you know. So that was, was, to find that tone was 
was was always a process. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, looking again at the stuff you've worked on, tone has been so important mm-hmm. in all of them, and they're all different. I mean, I think again that this is something Fogelman does really mm-hmm. well in those two shows. That like tone was so specific. Um, what are there? Con- you've been there at the beginning of these rooms. Are there conversations about what does this show feel like, or is it there from the pilot? Fogelman's voices are so strong. Mm-hmm. You can it's there in the writing of the pilot, let alone wow. the shooting of the pilot. He just really has a very particular um, way of writing. I think the reason he's so successful is that you can just feel him coming out of the pages when you read a page even. His voices are so clear and vivid. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the way that I got through the first, especially two or three weeks of The Muppets, where I was just hanging on for dear life, was to just pretend I was Dan Fogelman all day, every day, <laughs> and think about how would Dan Fogelman handle this meeting you're about to have to have? Mm-hmm. How would Dan Fogelman pitch this thing you're about to pitch? How would Dan Fogelman come upon it? And the main things that what that means to me is he would be confident and positive. Mm-hmm. Like he has this just likable way of being very confident about what he's doing and telling everybody that it's great in a way that just makes you feel good. And that was what I've tried to sort of grab. And, um, and also the heart, like he, he wants a heart moment in everything he does. And we so often on the neighbors would have an episode and he would say it's working, but it's like missing the something special. Mm-hmm. And the something special often for Fogelman would be, laying some little seed at the mm-hmm. top of the episode they would come back in a beautiful speech at the end of the episode you know some yeah. some some little payback like a fogel mini speech um <laughs> that he's so good at and by the way i went to his wedding last year and he really wrote the hell out of that <laughs> wedding like he can write some vows, nice. you know and everybody's very worried about his wife um having to also write her own vows and come sure. after him and a lot of pressure for a moment he was like do you want to go first because like Everybody and nobody wants to follow a Fogelman love speech, but oh she killed God. it. She did great. She really That's kept hilarious. up. Um, but so yeah, that is something that absolutely hmm. I tapped into for the Muppets because I really wanted to bring a lot more heart and a lot more um, kind of big happy endings that make you feel good at the end mm-hmm. of the episode um, and not sort of like you're left a little bit angsty. You know, it's funny. I mean, it feels like this is a dirty secret about writing heart into things, but there is kind of a formula yeah. to it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and there's a and it's a huge trick to do that without it feeling formulaic, right? right? And that's what Dan is so good at that's is his dialogue is yeah. just beautiful dialogue always. Um so yeah that was mm-hmm. that was a lot of that. I mean I guess that there's a large part of it that's about emotional honesty too. Yeah. Um is this I mean again we're talking about something like Gallivant or the Muppets where you're dealing with this crazy world or unusual characters is that is that a hard thing to put on the page uh no it's easy because you get to because it gives you the easy funny right you get to like come at it from what's the Mm. real human emotional thing is this a friendship story is this a romance story is someone feeling rejected is someone feeling insecure is some does somebody have a dream they're pursuing you know all of this sort of basic big Mm -hmm. human stories to tell and then you don't have to worry about the jokes because there's this ridiculous thing happening whether it's you know crazy medieval knights with unicorns that follow around the 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 virgin or or pigs and frogs you know you that that adds this element of um of humor all the time that makes it so much more fun like i feel like we just we just wrote this scene for an episode of the muppets and it was kermit going to roll for advice and it was a pretty sort of just like dry emotional scene mm-hmm. of, of of Kermit going to his old friend and asking about Piggy and what he should do. And then we remembered that Rolf is a dog, and so we had him off. You know, he's he, we had him notice that 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 Kermit was anxious and say, "Do you want to pet me?" I, you know, I'm a licensed therapy animal now. I think it'll really help. <laughs> and so we had Kermit scratching Rolf's head through the whole scene where they're talking back and forth. And Rolf, you know, he would give a big, like, here's my, here's the pros and cons of this thing I'm thinking about. And Rolf is like, huh, that's pretty interesting. Maybe he should just get a little bit closer behind the ear. <laughs> and, uh, and it added this whole element of, of laughter and adorableness that's to crazy. the straight scene. And so that's the gift of, of the silly characters. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the specificity of the characters. Yeah. Too, imagine. Yeah, yeah, um, he's a dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do we get to do because he's yeah, a dog? Yeah. Maybe <laughs> he has worms and he's bummed out. Like, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll watch that very special episode. <laughs> yeah, by the way, that is a joke in, the, in an upcoming episode. You'll How see. could you not? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> um, 
what do you think you personally bring to a room that you're in? Or running, for that matter. Well, I, I think, I, think I have a lot of energy and positivity. I think I do that. Um, I think I really try to um, make people feel like I hear all of their voices and that they... Um, I, again, this is a Fogelman uh, show running strategy where he's very um, creatively generous and gives the writer ownership of their script, of the, their episode. He really asks their advice about moments. You know, I often, because it's so hard to make as many decisions a day as you have to make as a showrunner. Like, it is exhausting. And eventually you stop being able to make the decisions because you can't, you can't make an, a decision every five seconds for 18 hours a day, you just eventually go, I don't know, I don't know. And there's nine jokes on the page and you're looking at it all and it's 10 p.m. And it's so nice to just turn to the writer of the episode and say, what's your favorite? Mm -hmm. And giving them, you know, giving them those moments, I feel like, is great for them and it's needed for me because I'm so tired, you know, you get so tired. Um, uh, I think that, yeah, those are probably the big ones. What do you what do you think the your strengths on the page are? Mm, it I sounds like you can write a joke. I can write a joke. I think I'm good at a happy ending. I think I, I think I'm good at a at a what was the purpose emotionally of the scene or of the story and what you know that you know that that what do we come away from this with? Like mm-hmm. what was the reason for this? Um, I think I'm I'm good at that. Um, my husband will say I'm, I wrote a Kristen moment into the end of a scene sometimes if he like finds a little like ah tied back in something. So that's. That's a thing what I like about Fogelman's stuff too. Um, and I think that might be it. I think that's good. That's okay. Good. Um, let's talk about the book for a minute. Uh-huh. Uh, remind me what it is called. Okay, it's called What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding. Uh-huh. And it's a comic memoir about all my single girl travel adventures that I was having while all my friends were getting married and having babies. <laughs> and so I got married at 40 mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, and so uh, it's every chapter is a trip. And it talks a little bit about Hollywood in there, too, and, you know, being the girl in the room and um, running away from Hollywood to be this kind of other softer self that I call Kristen adjacent, um, <laughs> that I am on the road, that I'm not at home, that's just, like, Funny. slower and softer, and I can't speak the language, so I can't be smart or funny or fast. I can just sort of smile and nod and slow down, and it's just, like, this soul food for me after a writer's room for nine mm-hmm. months. Um, so that was what the book was about. How did how did it become a book? Um, I started writing a few different times. This is good for aspiring writers. I've gotten a couple of jobs based on like David Sedaris toned autobiographical essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a show seven years ago for ABC that was a pilot that got picked up uh, for 13 episodes and then we wrote 10 and before we could shoot number two they pulled the plug because it was 2008 and the market crashed and Alyssa Milano and Steve McPherson and who knows so anyway that all happened because I'd written a couple of essays about my family mm-hmm. um, and I'd got, those essays had gotten me that show and a lot of other jobs and staffing season was coming up and I thought I should write some fresh essays. Mm-hmm. And people forever had been telling me to write down all of the stories I've been telling at dinner parties about my sexy single girl travel adventures. Um, but I hadn't really like known what the tone would be yet or what it was. I didn't want to just sort of write a salacious tell-all. You know, I didn't want to write Eat, Pray, Love. So I wasn't sure what it was. Um, but I sat down and started to write. And what had also happened concurrently was... That was the month that I met my then boyfriend's two Hmm. children. And that was also the month that my evil stepmother, who was like the bad guy of my life, died, leaving behind my three very young half-siblings. So I sort of, that month, got five kids uh, because my father's kind of elderly and I was spending a lot of time with my siblings and now with my now stepchildren and facing my fears about being the kind of stepmother, you know, that my stepmother was, you know, and, and will they hate me and make my life miserable the way that I hated her. Um, so I was processing a lot of that when I sat down to write just a quick, funny vacation romance essay. <laughs> and suddenly I had written 70 pages and it was only three of the trips. And I realized that there was sort of a final chapter if I wrote, if I ended up marrying this guy whose kids I had just met. And it seemed Which like is was, a good reason to get married, right? Exactly. I just like it'd be a really great end of the book. Uh, and so I, at first, I kind of manifested it, sort of. I took those three chapters 
and I slapped a cover page on it and said that it was excerpts from the memoir, what I was doing while you were breeding, to legitimize them as a writing sample. And But then I was like, man, I think it might be a book. And I sent it to my agents, who sent it to a book agent, who said it's absolutely a book, and helped me write a proposal that summer, and then sold it in a bidding war and, and ended up writing the book. Um, and while I was writing the book, this you know I can, it was another year and a half of relationship. So I was finishing up the last pages of this single girl story as I was literally packing away my single girl house to move in to the house I bought with my now husband and and stepkids. And so I was finding these items that were reminding me of things that I would quick write into the book. And the whole thing was this perfect dovetailed, crazy movie ending that people have said, oh, she ended the book in such a, you know, um, convenient place. It was so tied up like a boat. But it was literally the, like, the last things happening in my life five minutes before publishing. It was really up to the last moment, and it just happened to be that publishing happened in this perfect fairy tale ending where I moved into the house that's a Victorian that the neighborhood kids call, call the Cinderella house. Oh, it's come a Vic- on. I know. It's dumb. It's just dumb. Hilarious. So... It all worked out. It seemed like it seemed like it told me that the book and the personal choices were all sort of meant to be. That's and it really interesting. It was really a good process. Um, and, and it sounds like the the writing came pretty easily. I mean, you had these stories to tell. Yeah. And it felt like it just it just poured out. Yeah, it was so nice to not have all the rules that you have when you're mm-hmm. writing, you know, TV or movies. You know, you don't have to have any structure. You can go off on little sidebars and and kind of kind of just find your way. It was a real joy. The mm-hmm. hard part was my fear of writing Eat, Pray, Love. Like, my fear sure. of writing a, you know, something that felt like a navel-gazy yeah. um, memoir because I'm not Hillary Clinton. Like, why does my life matter? You know, so it was really important to me that, okay, my life matters if I tell it in an entertaining way, if it's mm-hmm. a fun read. So the, the fun part of that read was, was always a real try for me. And I thought I was going to write a collection of funny David Sedaris stories. And then my editor was like, you're a female memoirist. Women want to know about what's going on with you at home and what happened with your family to make you into this weirdo and what, you know, what your relationships are like and what it was like to work in Hollywood and all these things that I had no intention of writing about um, that became super um, personal and writing about people in ways that were really personal because I kind of at first was like, oh, I'm going to write about the bartender in Russia. But to write about him, I kind of had to also write about the guy that I had a three-year relationship mm-hmm. with, you know, and, and my mother and all of these people. So um, it was a really stressful thing to, to be writing about people whose relationships you care about. Sure. You know? Well, and it's also, I mean, you're digging deep on them as well as yourself. Yeah. And that's never easy. Mm-mm. And I have no sense of privacy, so it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't that I was afraid of telling people sort of anything about myself, but I was worried about other people sure. not wanting to be written about for sure. I was worried about my little half siblings because I was writing about their mother who had just died. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was worried about a lot of those people, and uh, so that was stressful. It's interesting too to me that this editor kind of gave it not just a narrative shape, but that kind of grew out of a marketing mm-hmm. thing. So this is what is expected of a woman memoirist. Yeah, yeah, you're not Chuck Klosterman who's just, like, writing funny stories. That, like, people really want that kind of emotional side of it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I did all the press after the book came out, there were so many people who the first question out of their mouth was, you know, what did your mom say about this book? Hmm. And I just feel like, I feel pretty certain that, like, Franzen wouldn't have gotten that question, you know, that, like, that, like, a dude writing about his life, like, that is not getting that question. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of that that was interesting. Why is uh, the stepkids mm-hmm. and the step-siblings, mm-hmm. that's a show. Why are you not making that show? Oh, but I believe <laughs> me. Well, that Alyssa Milano show was sort of, was, was the show before the stepkids, at least. That uh-huh. was Alyssa Milano was in between Bo, her father, Bo Bridges, and her mom, Annie Potts. Uh-huh. Annie Potts had the sexy international life she should be having, and her father had th- had little kids that she was co-parenting because he was so hands-off. Gotcha. So that that was that show. It was called Single with Parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the, step, the stepkids show... It's hard because I don't want to use them as fodder, sure. right? Like, there's there's this, oh, what's your next book going to be? 
and I'm not really sure because I don't think I can write about my husband and kids the way I could about Russian bartenders. Yeah. So that's the hard part. It's a different thing. You, and you have to live with these people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I definitely pull little little elements of them, the like silly teenagerness, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, get little elements of their life that I that I pick and choose from. They they helped me with the Chuck Nerd stuff for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, on Single with Parents, uh, I just came off of a show uh-huh. that was picked up for 10 episodes. Uh-huh. And as they were starting production on number two, they shut it down. Uh, but we had a great few months in the room. Awful. It's the best room. But That's what we had, too. It was a magical room. Yeah, so so I don't know if you can go into what happened, but what do you do? Like, this was your show, too. So what do you do with yourself during that process as it falls apart, and then you enjoy working with these people? The same executives that I'm currently on. working for, by the way. <laughs> same executives. All the same people. Um, and by the way, I wrote about it in my book, and they still wanted to buy the book, ABC. So everybody seemed to be all right about it. Right. Um, it was heartbreaking. I The day that the plug got pulled, I bought a plane ticket to New Zealand, and I left three days later. And I went for, I thought, three weeks to just walk by myself. And then I stayed for six weeks because I just had to keep walking by myself a little longer and yelling at people in my head. (laughs) Um, It was just heartbreaking, but it was like a huge amount of showrunner grad school. You know, Mm -hmm. it was uh, and it was six months to get to make a four million dollar movie about my family. So there was that. Um, And uh, and I learned a, a tremendous amount. But it was it was just a process that I don't know how I could have quite won it. You know, Mm -hmm. DreamWorks was the studio and they have told me they can't figure out how it could have gone any other way. Mm. There was just, there were so many odd elements going on. I sold a script on spec that I'd written over the strike. Um, And then that spec script turned into 32 drafts by the time it was all done. Like I had, yeah, we we rewrote it a million times. Steve McPherson hated the A story at the table read and we had to toss it out and kind of start over in lots of ways and but he wished that it was more like what he had bought but we weren't allowed to develop it backwards to what it had been so we had to keep going in different directions and then we shot it and day six of seven he didn't like the way it was directed but it was already day six so that was too late so then when it got picked up because it had tested through the roof and all of the assistants loved it and all of the grips loved it and all of the executives loved it Steve still wanted big rewrites and reshoots so I was pitching big rewrites on the script um, that he would love in the room, and then I would deliver, and he wouldn't love anymore. And it was also concurrently when Mark Pedowitz was still running the studio, and Mark Pedowitz said, this is testing great. I don't want to pay to reshoot very much. Mm. And Steve said, I want to reshoot a whole lot and wanted the studio. Yeah. And um, so I was stuck in between those two voices. So I ultimately ended up also writing eight drafts of what was a prequel pilot the network executive mm. said maybe if this pilot is episode two then Steve will be not as hard on it and we can have this prequel episode be the real pilot but my character met the people who changed her life forever right. in the pilot so I didn't know how to make the day before her life changed forever <laughs> the actual pilot so I had to take half of the pilot and and like Frankenstein sign it up with a new half of another script and take the other half of the pilot and Frankenstein that up with a new half of another script and eight drafts of that that Steve then said why did you have her write a prequel pilot I didn't want that and so all of that was happening while meanwhile the room was just flowing like the scripts were just coming Mm -hmm. like water the writers were saying these characters feel like they've existed forever they were just these amazing scripts that were coming from people like John Levenstein who I couldn't believe I got to take credit for this incredible (laughs) script he wrote so good Um, but in the meantime we just couldn't get Steve okay with the pilot and so finally he pulled the plug you know is that we just that the market had crashed in 2008 it was a very expensive show ABC had to cut 75 million dollars from its budget or something like that and uh, and it just all went away. That's unbelievable. It, it was, sounds like there was, are no lessons here. It was other I don't than know. This happens. Like there's nothing yeah. you can say I would do differently, yeah. or you take to your next job. I mean, were you nervous going on onto other things? You know what I would have done differently is called Steve directly. Hmm. Um, getting rid of the middleman is something that I've definitely brought to the Muppets. Oh, I have. You know, in those first couple of weeks, I was on the phone with Paul Lee Mm -hmm. saying, this is what I think I want to do. Are you okay with it? Mm -hmm. Because I know that there's so many people in between the decider and me who are trying to guess at what he would like. 
and I just didn't want to have the telephone game ruin it all because mm-hmm. I didn't have time. I had two weeks of hiatus before we had to shoot an episode that I hadn't dreamed up yet right. um, and six more. And so it had to happen so fast that I just called him directly whenever I had something that needed to really be decided that minute and not undone mm-hmm. because there wasn't time for it. Um, so that is something I learned from it that I've done differently. I never picked up the phone and yeah. and called him directly because I was told not to. Sure. And I'll just never listen to that again. Um, uh, what else? I, I, I don't know what else I could have done. Yeah. I'm just not sure. No, it's, yeah. it's this shit happens. Yeah, I know. It's and you don't expect crazy. it. You're ready for the show to not get picked up. You're ready for the show to get canceled from bad ratings. Right. You're not ready for that particular moment you in think, time. Let to have me the... get through this pilot. Yeah. So I can get rolling. That's right. And then I, and, oh, uh, and I never got the chance to prove them wrong. Yeah. Because I knew what we were writing was good, and everybody did too, and the, the, the cast was so good together. Like, the magic oh, had happened. And the fact that I never got to kind of prove that it was happening, that was the joy of the Muppets. People really loved mm-hmm. my first episode this week. All the reviews were so good, and That's it right. has been three months of having to fight everybody to kind of make it all happen. And the fact yeah. that everybody loved it, I'm just so relieved. That so, was This was a question I was curious about with the Muppets, and I, we'll start to wrap mm-hmm. up, but... The number of voices who are weighing in, because it's a big property, there are a lot of different entities involved, you know, the fact that you can call Polly on some of these things and say, I need to do this, this is the decision I'm making, but, like, it comes down to collaboration, right? Like, this is what this job is about. Yeah. Um, What are the challenges, but what are the opposite of the challenges? (laughs) What are the triumphs of that? I mean, there's this moment that happened... On, there were a million moments like this. In the last week, I had set career highlights in the last week. Willie Nelson playing on the road again with the mayhem, you know, like watching him braid his hair in the, in the <laughs> dressing room. Jack White covering Stevie Wonder, Sunshine of My Life, what? surrounded by all the puppets, including me operating a Muppaphone because we didn't have enough hands. Get so I got, to, I got to be a Muppet for a minute. That's I great. mean, amazing things that, and they were also welcoming and lovely about it but there was a moment in particular that I was like oh the machine just worked and it was the writers had written the scene in which uh, Big Bean Carl the big monster takes the bad guy's phone and swallows it and then they need to get it back so he was just going to spit it up but the performers were like what if Rizzo spelunks down into Carl's belly and fetches the phone I'm like that's hilarious let's do that and this comes during production. That's right. That's right. right. That, that's, yeah, that's that's the, the kind of pitch happened the day before we shot yeah. it, let's call it. So I wrote it into the script the day before we shot it. And then in that time, props had gotten involved, and they're like, we're going to have all this spelunking equipment be found objects from the office. So oh they God. took two shoelaces and tied them together, and then they, ta- they attached the shoelace to a Rolodex, <laughs> and, they, had, uh, and they, they, they stuck a little pencil um, into the kind of Rolodex to to use as like a lever that Pepe with two of his four arms used oh. to crank <laughs> and the shoelace would, would, would wrap around the Rolodex just going you know with all of its Rolodex cards and that was how they got Rizzo out of Big Bean Carl's belly he emerges wearing a found object helmet made out of half of a tennis ball and a little um, keychain flashlight that's taped to the top like a headlamp. And he's got a harness made out of a measuring tape, a seamstress's measuring tape, that the workshop had all put together. And it was adorable, amazing. And then the writers were throwing in joke lines and the performers are saying them and this whole thing just kind of happened out of all these departments building on each other and bringing their own like genius to it. That was one of those moments where you're like, there's the machine working. This is how it's supposed to go. It's so great. That's awesome. That is good to hear. Yeah. Um, So as I said, this will go out in a week or two. Uh Uh-huh. What are there, like five episodes left this season? Uh, yes. Tomorrow is our second of six. Okay. Mm-hmm. So people will be able to catch them. Yes. Um, what Muppet do you love writing? I mean, or what, Deadly. What couple? I think that Deadly, uh, Uncle Deadly, might be my favorite to write. Right. Uh, he's just very dramatic and over-the-top and ridiculous and in denial, I think, about a lot of things about himself. <laughs> um, I also, I'm in love with Argentina. That's three chapters in my book. And so 
as part of my effort to kind of um, humanize Piggy a little bit and make sure that she is not just the bad guy. Um, in our break, I had her go on a single girl solo adventure to Argentina to find herself. And she was in Tierra del Fuego, cruising around the icebergs, much like somebody I know. <laughs> and she tapped into her charitable side when she saw this little penguin living homeless on the beach without a coat or a hat. And so she brought him home in her cosmetics tote. So we made this new little baby emperor penguin awesome. puppet that, as her sidekick, Deadly, has to often wear in a Bjorn. And so Deadly and the Penguin have become my new favorite couple to write for. Like the Penguin pulls on Deadly's tentacles. Deadly hates him. <laughs> the Penguin's named Gloria Stefan. He says a lot of things about Gloria Stefan that I like. Um, <laughs> that's wonderful. I love Pepe. Pepe and Deadly, I think, are my two favorites to write for. Nice. He's, he's always funny. Everything he says is funny. He's, it feels like a good joke uh, mechanism. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's funny. Um, and we end as we always do by asking you, what are you watching on television these days? Do you have uh, time to watch television? I mean, not that much, but I fell madly in love with the second season of Fargo as the first season. Right. Love, love, loved that. Um, I watch Girls. I watch Togetherness. I loved Togetherness. Um, I still watch New Girl as far as network comedies. I enjoy the New Girl. Um, uh, what else have I been really watching? That might be what I have time for right now. I think that that's might... a good answer. Oh, I just watched uh, Kimmy Schmidt. I just started that finally Speaking in the last like, week or so. Yeah, totally yeah. enjoyable. Crazy. Um, I think that's what what's been happening. These are good. Making a Murderer I started. I'm watching. Mm, just like three in. I'm enjoying it. Did you see the staircase? No, but I've heard that's the one I have to watch. Yeah. That's now on my. I have that's time like to watch thing. Twenty years old now. Yeah, like, I want to do that. Pretty great. Okay, I'm gonna get in that. Great. <laughs> Thank you for talking with me, Chris. Thank this you for really talking lovely. to me. Thank you. I'm uh, honored. Good luck with the rest of the show. Thank you so much. Everybody watch it. Now leaving Nerdist.com.